Welcome to the Sunday message from Hollyview Church in Boring, Oregon. We gather each Sunday morning at 10.30 as a worshiping community of Jesus followers on mission to see God glorified in our lives, our cities, and around the world. At Hollyview, the Bible serves as our foundation and guide for both life and ministry. It tells the story of God and the story of us. We believe the better we know the themes and flow of the biblical story, the better we will be able to find our little place in God's grand storyline. Thank you for joining us. And now, here's this week's message with guest speaker Dale Smith. He preaches from Genesis chapter 14 with a message entitled, The First War. Most of you, or many of you at least, know a fellow who spoke here a few months ago, Bob Moffat. He was over there in the church that some of you came from coming this way. Bob said in 1982, it was in July, and it was in Alaska at Victory Bible Camp. He made this comment, God is in the people-changing business. If I didn't believe that, I'd find another line of work, he said. Now, obviously, that's stuck in my mind, because to hear that that two-sentence phrase and to hang on to it as, like I did and remember where he said, even remember him saying it, it had an impact on me. I wasn't just out there going into missions, going into ministry, because it was a, a good career. It was because God is wanting to change people's lives. God's in the people development business. And I was pretty jazzed about that. Now, I don't know if that's something a 68-year-old is supposed to say, jazzed. But anyway, I, I did, I do. No. So now if you ever wonder how old I am, now you know. There's some credibility that comes with being been there, done that. Hopefully that's not a bad thing. You've heard my testimony, many of you. Uh, gave it a year ago here from this pulpit briefly. At 16, God reached into my life and God called out this 16-year-old kid and gave me a chance to give my life to him. I said, I'd be a fool not to. So 16, 16 years old, gave my life to Christ. Life's never been the same. It was a moment where God reached down into heaven so at that point, God began a journey in my life, and I don't want this to be all about me, but it might help illustrate where I want to, what I want to pull out of this passage. God began a process of stretching me beyond what I thought I could do again and again and again. By the time I graduated from high school, came to Christ at 16, two more years of high school, by the time I graduated high school, I knew for sure that God wanted me in missions. Now, you know, the thought of missions, that didn't sound terrifying. You know what sounded terrifying? Having to preach, having to get up in front of people, having to lead a congregation that you've started or planted. That, that pretty well terrified me. So I said, okay, let's work out the Dale way. I decided aviation, and Joby can appreciate this. I was going to go into missionary aviation. So I went to school and got all the training for you know, Bible school, but got training for missionary aviation, the flight, the maintenance, all that stuff. And God, who has a sense of humor, said, eh, I'm going to put you in a church planning role. And ultimately, I ended up working with First Nations people, Native people in Saskatchewan, Canada. And it was a church planning ministry. And I was speaking every week, and I was in the process of discipling people. Then I thought, okay, well, you know, you're not going to pull any more of these things. And then God said, oh, Dale, by the way, 
I want you to become the director for the Canada field for Interact's missionaries across Canada, four Western provinces, about 50 missionaries who are church planners, various places. I want you to be responsible for all them. Now, I was like, I don't think so, Lord. Uh, but I agreed because I knew God had said you're supposed to do this. I don't know if you spend any time in Exodus 3 and 4 where Moses is repeatedly saying, no, Lord, you know, I can't speak. I, I pick somebody else. This isn't. This isn't me. And God says, no, wait just a minute. Who made your mouth? Oh, yeah, but, 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 but. And so finally God sends Aaron as his spokesman. Interestingly, in the book of Acts, Stephen's sermon, he calls Moses a man who was powerful in speech. Now, you know, somehow between what he thought and what Stephen and God evaluated were different. He was able to be powerful in speech from God's perspective. Moses didn't see it. Well, I didn't see it either. And so I begged with God, Lord, you, do you really want me in this role? He stretched me again. And it's been a lifelong journey being stretched by God. Now, I don't, like I say, I don't want this to be all about me, but I want to go into the passage and look at some things. God is in the people changing business, in the developing business, developing people. God was trying and is trying to make me into a man who is a man more like Jesus every day. Now, if you know me, you know that I'm a, I've got feet of clay. I mess up. My wife will tell you that sometimes I do stupid things. Sometimes I'm not always nice. Sometimes I'm selfish. Sometimes I'm, you know, I just, I'm a work in process. I haven't gotten there yet, but by God's grace, I hope I'm moving toward Christ-likeness more and more every day. I think that's a goal for every one of us. And in Abram's story, we see a long journey of God developing a man to become more like him. Now, that... We're just, I mean, we've just started in this journey. I think a couple weeks ago you did Genesis 12, the call of Abraham um, and God's promise of blessing. And then 13, uh, where he and Lot divided. Now we're up to chapter 14 in Genesis. And I don't want to, <laughs> there's some crazy names here. Joel told me before, he says, you don't have to read all those names. Well, I'm not going to try to read all of them, but I, I think I might be able to, but not, not because I feel the need. But I'm going to shorten the story a little bit and say Genesis 14 is where we're going to go. And I want to walk you through the first seven verses verbally rather than asking you to read. We'll shorten it a little bit. So here's the background. Here's the setting. You've got four powerful kings, and we'll look at a map later, but you've got four powerful kings in Mesopotamia, and that's the Tigris and Euphrates, River Valley. It's now modern Iraq, uh, part of Iran, Turkey, Syria. It's north and east of Canaan. Powerful kings, and they'd subjugated five lesser kings in Canaan, southern Dead Sea area. Two of those were kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then three others. For 12 years, they paid, they, they were subject, subjugated uh, by these northern kings, and they paid homage to them, and I'm, I'm sure whatever it was, taxes, uh, but they rebelled in year 13. They said, enough of this. We're not going to do this. Well, it took them a little while. They're a long ways away. They're hundreds of miles away, but they mobilized, and these four kings in the north mobilized, and in year 14, they came down, and they were going to teach these people a lesson, in essence. 
came down uh, on the, well, we'll look at it later. They defeated kings along the route and all over southern Canaan, south of the Dead Sea. And then, uh, I better be sure I'm not getting too far ahead of myself. Well, let's do this. Let's pick up the story at verse 8. And I will read from verse 8 on. And if there's anything I missed here, we'll go back and pick it up. So if somebody can tell me what page this Genesis 14, verse 8 is in your pew Bible, I can help all of you out if you want to follow along. Page 9? Was that right? Page 9. Okay. Reading from the same translation as your pew Bible. And, Joel, you'll have some fun with the names here. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim, with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who was delivered, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Almost done. Are we still there? You're able to read it as we're going here. The end of verse 20, And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. It's a long chapter. There's a story there, and we'll try to go through that story a little bit more clearly and pull out some principles as we walk through it. Let's commit this to the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that it promised, you promised that it won't return void. 
So there's power in what you have to say through your word, and I pray that what I have to say will honor what you want said, what you want communicated from this book of truth of yours. Thanks, Father. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if we can get that map put up, that might make it a little easier. This is a map that I think Joel used, and if you look, the red is not what we're going to look at. If you look at the green, I mean, we can. You can look at the red. It's, it's two tracks going here. Over here in the upper right-hand corner for you, the green arrow starts coming down. That is, up there is Mesopotamia, and those four kings start traveling down the east side, this side of the Jordan Valley, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. They travel down there, and they're defeating people all along the way, all through there. They make that big loop. They're doing battle and defeating other little kingdom states there. Well, after they've done all of that defeating in that area, then they head just south of the Dead Sea. And I don't know if you can read it or not. It says the Valley of Siddim. That is the valley where the event takes place, where the battle happens. And the five kings, Sodom and Gomorrah and the two other, they're defeated. And they take off running. Some run for the hills. Some get trapped in the bitumen pits, the tar pits that are there. And some are taken captive. And that included uh, Lot, uh, the son of Abram. So Lot and his people are taken out of there. Well, not a very good day. And war is ugly. We know war is ugly. There's horrors that happen right now over there in, in Ukraine. Things are happening that we wouldn't wish on anybody. But I want to use this because this story is really the backdrop for what I want us to see about how God is developing a man after his own heart, a man who is later, several places in Scripture, Abram is referred to as the friend of God. This is a man of faith. How is that faith developed? Now, if you remember, and I, I'll give you a quick review, uh, Abram had some choices. And this is how God develops us. He gives us choices along the way, challenges for us to grow through. So Abram is called by God when he's off in the north, uh, and he has a choice. He can acknowledge that this is the real God, and he also has a choice, am I going to do what he says and take off and travel to Canaan? So it's sort of a watershed. He chooses to say yes, and he follows God's direction. Then a little later, there's a famine in the land, and now I don't know whether his choice was uh, trust God and stay in Canaan, or maybe it was a legitimate thing to go down to Egypt, but he heads down to Egypt. And while he's in Egypt, he didn't really honor his wife. He told people that was his sister, and, you know, she's then vulnerable uh, to other people. It made a mess. We'll just leave it at that. So he had a choice. He didn't make the best choices, but it was a developmental thing. God is giving him opportunities. What are you going to do with this? Are you going to trust me to take care of you in Egypt where you're a stranger, you're an outsider, or are you going to put your wife out there and pretend she's your sister and leave her vulnerable? Well, 
we know his choice wasn't ideal there. Uh, again and again, God brings choices into his life. Then he had another choice. Chapter 13. His herdsmen getting too big, their herds between his nephew Lot and himself. There's just not enough land. They're crammed together. They've got to make a decision. What are we going to do? So now the choice is, do I watch out for number one or do I let my nephew have first choice? Well, we know the answer. You, I wasn't even here the last two weeks. So, you know, you guys can correct me if I got something wrong about chapter 12 or chapter 13, okay? But he had a choice. Do I say, okay, I'll take whatever the, the leftovers are? Or do I say, I want what's mine. I'm the, I'm the big guy here. Yeah, you're just the tag along. He didn't do that. He responded well. He responded in a godly way this time. God is continuing to develop him, giving him opportunities. Well, I need to get into this very important, very key piece. I want to read. I don't know if we have it on the... I don't think I asked you to put this much in there, but I'm going to read... Chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. So in that same passage, if you're in your Bible, or if, it's, if we can get 17 to 20 up there, if not, just listen. This is a key section. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. Now let me give you a little bit of background here. This war took place when Abram heard that Lot had been taken captive. He mobilized. He got 318 men, as we read in the passage. These were men, retainers, actually the Hebrew talks about. These were men, they were retainers, but they'd been in his household, so they grew up. They were born into his household and grew up there. This wasn't a man who was unpowerful. This man had lots of resources around him. 318 men in his own house. And he also got these other three Amorites to join with him, who he was in some kind of covenant apparently with. And together they went in chase of these four kings from Mesopotamia. They traveled first 140 miles north to Dan. Now, it wasn't called Dan then, but we know where that is. 140 miles north, they chased them. And then, in a very wise move, Abram divides up his group. We don't know if it was just two or more than two groups. But then they attacked these Mesopotamian kings at night, and they defeated them. Well, then the chase begins. And then they chase them for another hundred miles north and recover Lot and all his possessions. So they're coming back from this 240-mile journey. Think about that. I mean, that's like north of Seattle. Think of taking a team of people on foot, maybe a few camels here and there, traveling beyond Seattle just to chase down these people. That's what was going on here. It wasn't a quick journey. It wasn't an easy uh, undertaking. So now they're coming back. Victorious. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, mewing of lambs and bleeding, and uh, you know, there's 
and bleeding, uh, there's probably a lot of this motley crew working its way back. They get back in the area of Jerusalem, or Salem as it was called then, and in one of the valleys just outside Jerusalem, the, the valley of Shiveh, he meets, this group is met by two kings. Now, one king is the king of Sodom, and he has an offer for him, and one king is the king of Salem, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a key player in Scripture. Melchizedek, we don't hear a lot about him after this passage until you get to the book of Hebrews. I mean, he is in, in Psalm 110, but we don't know anything about where did he come from? Who were his ancestors? Who was before him? Who followed him? And, and the writer of Hebrews references that and says he had no beginning and end. Well, that doesn't mean he really did have no beginning or end. It's possible. Possible it was a theophany. That means a pre-incarnate uh, version of Christ, a Christophany or a theophany. But, or more likely, it just means he was like Christ and that he had no beginning and end as far as his genealogy goes. Well, I got to decide. You know, just you'll find this interesting before I go any further. Dean said something. He used to go to a church where the pastor never prepared anything. He'd get up there and just preach. And I thought, you know, that could be pretty scary. I jokingly said to uh, Joel before the service, I said, I told my wife, you know, this is a great adventure. I wonder where this is going to go. Actually, I did prepare, though, so don't worry. It's, we have a good idea where we're headed, uh, just so long as I can communicate that to you. So he's meeting these two kings, and... The first king who meets him is mentioned in verse 17 is the king of Sodom. Melchizedek then, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. What does that make you think of? Where do we use bread and wine? Celebration of the Lord's Supper, which we'll be doing after this service. This is a picture of that, I believe, and is referenced further on in Scripture um, again and again. But Melchizedek blessed them and said, Blessed be Abram God most of, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Okay, God Most High, El Elyon, God over all, God Most High. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Significance of this, I think, is that the greater would give blessing to the lesser in the Old Testament. So, Abram, who's been called by God, promised all these blessings, he still sees Melchizedek as the greater, and he receives blessing from him. And he also, I think, validates what, he's, what Melchizedek has said by, at the end of verse 20, he says, and gave him a tenth of everything. Now, if some guy just says some nice words, I'm not going to go give him a tenth of all the spoils of war. He gave him a tenth of all he had because he recognized this is God's representative. And he said, I know that what you have to say is truth from God. You're serving as a priest of God, God most high. And I think the 
one of the most significant pieces in this is he says, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He's reminding Abram, this wasn't your great military prowess. This wasn't because you're so wise, you had such well-trained men, because you had such good partnerships with these Amorite guys that were with you. This is because God Most High, El Elyon, has provided the victory. This isn't about you. You were obedient to do what you knew you should do to care for your nephew in that culture. You'd never abandon family. I mean, that would have been something that you just wouldn't even consider doing. Well, for Abram, I'm sure he would have thought that would have been ungodly behavior. So he honors what he knows would be expected in that culture, and he goes to protect. At risk of his own life, at risk of all he had, he pursues and is victorious. I want to take uh, this look and just do a step back from this chapter a little bit and look at the bigger picture of Abram's life. We sort of did. Uh, God's been building a man of God, building somebody who is increasingly becoming more godly. God's working in his life, putting all these crises, all these events in his life, these challenges. And these, we'll have lots more of them as we go through the life of Abram. You'll hear a lot more. But Genesis is a book where we learn a lot, foundational stuff, about the character of God. If we didn't have Genesis, we wouldn't know a lot about who God is and his character. We wouldn't know a lot about who we are as people. And we wouldn't know a lot about how God works with us. So Genesis is foundational. How God works with people is modeled in the life of Abram. Well, God, one of the things God does in all of our lives is he calls. God called me as a 16-year-old kid and said, Dale, come to me. I want to name you as my son. Now, I could have decided to reject that, say, forget it. I'm going my way. But I said, Lord, I'm desperate. I know I need you. And I walked into that relationship intentionally. But God called. That was his moving. And God also works in my life all along the way. He gives me opportunities to respond in faith or gives me opportunities to say, you know, I can't do that. Well, I had lots of opportunities. And I, you know, I should probably have told you some of the stories where God said, you can do this. I'm calling you to do this. And I walked away. There's a lot of shame stories that I could give you. Just maybe a little bit of pride. I won't. But, <laughs> um, but they're there. And I have to live with those times when I didn't believe God would provide. God all-powerful. God El Elyon. God overall. I could have hung on to him, and I didn't. Well, God did call me in salvation, and I think probably most people here know the Lord, have a personal relationship with him. If you don't, well, this is a great place to find out how you can do that. Now, I'm assuming that they're in a group this size, there's usually somebody who was like me, who was going to church, who didn't really know the Lord. But God calls. John says in John 6:44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God draws. He's drawing people who don't know him to himself. And he also calls you and me to a life of obedience. 
John 14, 15. Again in John. I must like that book. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. God calls us to obedience. If, we're, if we love him, he's named us as his kid. We'll keep his commandments. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will show myself to him. And he also calls us, now here's, here's a key thing. Now, I'm a missionary type. Now, maybe I'm an administrator type now, but I work in a mission organization and I've done missions. I've done cross-cultural missions. I love the messiness of people who don't think like I do, who don't talk like I do. I like it because I've seen God invade their life and change them from broken, messed up people some alcoholics, some druggies, lots of immorality, adultery. You can't imagine. Oh, yeah, you can. It's all around us. There was brokenness, just like us. But it's brokenness in another culture, and it's more open. Here we hide it. We put on good masks. But in the cultures we worked in, people are a lot more transparent. They'd show up at our house, sit down at 11 o'clock at night after driving an hour and 15, 20 minutes to get there. They'd sit down at the table and say, my wife's thinking about leaving me, or my, I'm sorry, my husband's thinking about leaving me. Right there, in your living room, just boom. Okay, now Joel probably hears some of that, but nah, that was a way of life. Transparency, no secrets. You saw the ugliness, you saw what was going on. But to see God change people, take those lives and turn them around and make them new creations in Christ, that's exciting stuff. I was trying to preach this to Carol and just talking through one of the stories, and I just... I just about, well, I couldn't. I started crying because I'm just remembering tears of joy. The God who's in the people-changing business is changing people's lives. Well, that's one of the things we're called to do. We're called to make disciples. Now, maybe your context is right here. Maybe your context is on the other side of the world in Ulanu Day near Lake Baikal. But we're called to make disciples. Of course, a missionary type, I'm going to use Matthew 28, 19 to 20, somewhere in a message. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You are called to make disciples. I am called to make disciples. If I'm a child of God, he's reached out and called me, and I've responded in faith. I'm his child. I am, I'm called to walk in obedience, but I'm also called to make disciples. Now, you might say, hmm, that's, sure, that sounds good. You're up there. You're talking. I'm not sure I know how that works out in my life. I think one of the things that I really like in this passage is the reminder, Melchizedek makes the statement. He says, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. It wasn't Abram's might and skill that won this victory. Sure, he obeyed and he went out in the confidence that God was going to be with him, that God promised to make a great nation out of him. You've got to be alive to do that, I think, as a general rule. Uh, so he went out with confidence that God was with him, but he is told, reminded by Melchizedek, and the truth is there that what was accomplished was accomplished 
by God. He has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now, I want to take that thought and go just a little bit further with it. Me, who has often thought I couldn't do things, I wasn't able, didn't have the wisdom, the ability. Uh, Moses, who didn't think he could do things, couldn't speak. Well, if I look, if I pull back the curtain and I see what God's doing, I realize that it really isn't about me anyway. My responsibility is to be obedient to what he's called me to do. His responsibility is to take care of the outcome. That's pretty freeing. You know, I don't have to worry about how I look in this. I just obey and trust that God is going to accomplish his purposes. So, God is the one who empowers. He's the one who gave Abram the ability to do what he did in defeating these four powerful kings. And he's the one who gives you and me the ability to live victorious lives. Not always easy. Does anybody else here struggle with sin in their life? I mean, you know what? We're, we're addicted creatures, addictive creatures. It doesn't matter whether it's a substance or whether it's just I'm addicted to TV or laziness. We tend to be addicted to things that aren't necessarily God-honoring. I need help all the time, and I need God's strength to have any kind of victory in my life. He is the one who empowers me. He's the one who empowers you. We do have promises of victory over sin. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy and doesn't mean we aren't going to fall. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, most of you, probably you young guys all learned this first. Maybe not in the translation I did, but uh, since I don't remember it. Okay. There's no temptation overtaking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will, with that temptation, also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it or have victory in the middle of it. That doesn't mean I'm always victorious. It means the possibility is there. God who empowers, the God who empowered Abram empowers me to have victory over sin, but I need to hang on to him and I need to be growing in relationship with him. Also, he, I think he gives us the ability to make disciples. Now, how do you make a disciple? Well, I think having a relationship with people. You know how I made disciples? I can tell you how I was discipled. People spent time in my life doing things with me, being in relationship, sharing life, sharing the word, sharing prayer, praying with me. Carol said one time, you didn't have any idea, just recently she said, you didn't have any idea how to go about church planning with Cree First Nations people or Native people in Canada. So, well, I had a little bit of an idea because I'd had people investing in my life in discipleship, getting me into the word, meeting with me, to talk through what that word had to say, holding me accountable for things. And that's all I knew to do. So I show up in this place where there's a scattered Christian here and there and a lot of non-Christians. What did I do? Well, I just did what had been done with me. I said, Lord, give me grace, give me wisdom, give me connections and build relationships and spend time with people. Jesus said in Matthew, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I think that's step one is having relationships, being a fisher of men, and then building into that relationship. 
what it means to be a Christ follower. You know, it's scary when you've got a lot of pages um, of notes, but I don't think we don't have to worry a whole lot. I am going to, they put a picture up there. Oh, yeah, let me, let me just, I drank an extra cup of coffee, and my wife said, I, I was joking. I said, hey, I'll drink an extra cup of coffee, so we'll be sure to get things done in time. And she said, oh, no, don't do that. You'll get a little like this. <laughs> I've done that before. I was on cold meds at a place where I was speaking for our staff, and she said it was pretty scary. So hopefully that caffeine won't do quite that for me. We trust. Um, that picture that you see up, up there, I know you can't believe that's a, either one of us. No, one of those is me, believe it or not back when my hair was a different color. I had a chance to I'm just leave that picture there, but I want to back up before I go into that and say, these kings, I want to unpack this a little bit further. These kings and what came out of that meeting. Verse 21 of Genesis 14. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Okay, so the victor, to the victor go the spoils. He had the right to have all of the spoils of war that he got. And the king of Sodom says, ah, yeah, you, you just go ahead and take it. He chose to give up the honor and the wealth that came with taking those spoils. Then you go through the rest of the verse and you see why. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. So what did he do here? He made sure that God got the glory. He didn't take any of this, the wealth that was rightfully his, the spoils of war. He didn't take it and put it in his belongings. He chose to say, I'm not going to take any of it. I give that up. I want to make sure that God is glorified by everybody knowing that he's the one. He's the one. I don't want anybody saying, I've made Abram rich. No king of Sodom. Make it made me rich. This is God. I take nothing but what the young men have eaten. I think we need to be careful to guard God's glory. I think Abram did in this case. Now, I am the most self-centered person I know. By God's grace, I'm a work in process, like I've said. And it's really easy for me to take credit for a lot of things that I had no business taking credit for. Now, nobody else has ever done that. I'm sure. But I like to be the hero. I like to be the one who is seen as got it together. No. But the reality is God again and again and again puts his finger on my life. And he says, Dale, this isn't about you. I'm God. You follow me. So you give me the credit, give me the glory because anything that happens ultimately is because I've moved my hand. 
Yes, you said okay and you obeyed, but the outcome is because of me. That's God's perspective. And it's the right perspective. So I need to be careful to roll back the glory to God. And at the risk of, I need to be very careful as I tell this story about this man here. And I, I don't want to do it in a way that in any way gives me glory or any credit. But what I want to do is tell a story about how God worked behind the scenes. Came to Christ, 16, mentioned that, called to the, into missions, ended up ultimately at 34 years old in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, going to start a church among Cree First Nations people. Well, that was, that was going to be a challenge. I had little idea what to do except build relationships. Show up there in North Battleford and have co-workers there, and they're having a Bible study out on one of the reserves, reservations we call them, and we're at somebody's house having a Bible study. Only been there a few days, driven a U-Haul truck all the way up there to Canada. We're living in somebody else's house, and we go to this Bible study. I have no idea what the Bible study was about, but there were some believers, some unbelievers, and the, my coworker was leading this Bible study. After it was over, I go back into the kitchen, there's always food. Whenever you get together with, with native people, there's always food at the end, or the beginning, or all the way through. There's always food. So we go to have snacks afterward, and here's this guy standing there, named, turned out his name was Edward. Now Edward, I don't know if you can tell from that picture, but Edward is a moose of a man. Literally, there, one time at the park, four of us, adult men my size, decided we were going to throw him in the lake. Well. He picked up one guy who had his leg, held him upside down, grabbed another guy, and he walked away from the lake with four guys and hanging on for all they're worth. He was, he was a significant physical specimen. But Edward was timid. He was hiding in the kitchen. He was afraid to go in there because all those Christians were there. He didn't, he felt unworthy, unable to connect socially with everybody there. Found out later, Edward was a believer. He'd come to Christ two years before. But when I met him, he's working in a bar. I mean, if you've got a built-in bouncer right there, you know, it's always a good thing for a bar. Uh, he's working in a bar. He is not being really all that faithful to his wife. He had come to Christ two years before, but he was a baby believer. We meet in this kitchen, and we clicked. I was really impressed with this guy, just a gentle giant of a guy. And apparently he connected with me. A week or so later, I, I really felt impressed. I should call him and say, hey, Edward, you want to get together sometime? And I called him. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, I was thinking about how could I get in touch with you? I've been wanting to see if we could get together. I said, well, maybe we'll get together and have some Bible studies. And he said, oh, that would be fantastic. He said, when can we start? Now, let's think about the, the uh, conductor of this orchestra. God takes this rookie who doesn't know anything and puts him in North Battleford, Saskatchewan. He takes this native guy who's looking for somebody to disciple in his life, disciple him, and puts them together in his sovereign plan. Edward said yes when he had a chance to be involved in Bible study. Went into it wide open. This guy, he had a third grade education. 
He learned to read pretty much in Bible studies and got a, a GED and uh, went on to become quite a student. But he didn't know much about reading, nothing about the Word, had never prayed out loud. He wrote out his first prayer because we were going to pray. So I said, well, just write out what you want to say to God. So he wrote out two or three sentences because that was all he could ever imagine praying out loud. And he started to pray. And I can tell you, I just was am hoping that I can tell this story without weeping because uh, the memory of him just breaking into conversation with God. Read that first sentence or two and then he just starts pouring his heart out to God. It was amazing watching his baby steps, watching him grow up in the Lord, become a mature man of God, a man who now is a spiritual pillar in his community. I won't tell you stories. He actually partnered with Interact Ministries, he and his wife, for a number of years. He has impact. His son is became a church planner and planted a native church as well. Uh, huge impact. And it was nothing to do with me. I was willing to say, yes, I'll go there. But it was God putting pieces together. But I had to say yes. I had to say, okay, God, you will empower me. You will enable me to do whatever you want done. Just like you empowered and enabled Abram to accomplish things that were way beyond what was reasonable. But it was God who did it, and God who gets the glory, and God who gets the credit. Edward still is walking with the Lord, still a tremendous testimony for the Lord, and God did that. And I just rejoice in knowing that I got to be a little tiny bit player in that. Well, I need to land this plane because Joel said I only have an hour and a half. What was that you were getting ready to throw at me? Anyway. Well, you've been very patient, and I want to say this is a... There's a, a dozen or more ways you could unpack this chapter, and I haven't really done it justice. But I've looked at it from a perspective of basically the application of how... There's too many pages here. You ever have too many pages of notes? I need to be like that pastor you are talking about, Dean, who just got up and spoke. Then you don't have to worry about getting lost in your notes, right? God calls... We need to respond. He calls in salvation. He calls in saying, I want you to make disciples. I want you to walk with me. He may call you to ministry full-time. I don't know, but God calls. Be sure to respond with yes. God empowers whatever he calls you to do. And some things we know he's called us to do, we know he's called us to walk in obedience. He'll empower you to do that. And God also is worthy of the glory. And we need to make sure we always roll back the credit on him. Don't be glory hogs. We need to learn that it's not really about us. It never was. It's about him and roll it back and give him the glory. Thank you for joining us for this message from Hollyview Church. We invite you to join us in person for our worship service every Sunday morning at 1030. You can find us on Southeast 257th Avenue, just off of Highway 212 between Boring and Damascus, Oregon. Or find us online at hollyviewchurch.com. Together, we are being shaped by the gospel, rooted in God's word, to share God's grace and truth. Again, whether online or in person, thank you for joining us here at Hollyview Church. Church.